Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And I'm very lucky that I've got Kate Oliver. And Kate is uh, a motorcycle guide in the high hills. She takes tours of um, differently life who want that extra challenge. As well as doing that, Kate has a life full of experiences. So she, uh, after school, she was a, a qualified stonemason. Uh, she's a poet. She's a writer. She went to Kellogg College, Oxford, where she learned uh, and did her master's in creative writing. And we're going to be talking about leadership and her experiences of leadership, particularly when you're in the most remote spots of the world with people who are scared um, and un unusual situations and what she's learned about that. So, Kate, welcome. Great to have you on the series. Thank you. Thanks. So, Kate, perhaps could you begin by telling us a little bit about Bit, little bit, just a little vignette of your leadership background, and we can go into it more later on, but just as a taster. Yeah, so I haven't had any formal leadership training. You know, I'm not a CEO or director. I've never been in the military. Um, my leadership background is leading motorcycle tours, as you say, in the mountains. So these tours are for members of the public. They come for fortnight and they ride Royal Enfield um, motorbikes. And we're generally up in the mountains. And over the course of the fortnight, we face everything from the, the crazy Indian traffic to um, meltwater crossings, rock falls, landslides, breakdowns, accidents. We also have, um, we're, um, altitude you know we're up to 18,000 feet sometimes we go up to the height of Everest base camp of course you have the Himalayan weather 30 degrees sun in one valley and then into the next valley it could be a snowstorm or raining we have melt water um, but over the course of the day whatever happens we have to get to our destination we have to get to our hotel we could there could be no other hotel available so um, these you know, people face probably more than they've ever imagined on a, a motorcycle. But now I do um, bespoke tours. So they're smaller groups of people. They're unsupported. We don't have a support vehicle. We don't have a mechanic or a medic, like with the larger groups. It's just myself, a medical kit, some tools and spares, and the customers carry their own minimal gear. So I'm responsible for people realizing their dream. I'm responsible for the, you know, their safety, solving the problems. And often these people are cold, wet, tired, and scared. So yeah, it's a bit of a dream job and it's a real challenge at times. It's great. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And, and there's gonna be some lovely stories that we can draw from it because the practical tips and techniques that others uh, can use in their day-to-day uh, jobs are really based on people's experience. We had Guy Waite, as you and I were chatting about earlier, who's a skipper, a clipper skipper from around the world. And, and he has these legs where people are very scared or doing unusual things, 
or they're very successful people in their own right. And then they think, oh, I'm going to go and do around the world sailing or I'm going to go riding uh, Lee Enfield bikes up in the, the high Himalayas. Oh, that sounds a bit of fun. I could easily do that. Little do they know what a challenge it is and probably the largest challenge they'll face as leaders in any stage of their life. So we're going to be talking about that in a minute. We also were talking about um, who inspires you and your story of inspiring leadership. And we had, we had a, a talk about the, this, this myth of the great leader. Perhaps would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that for me, there's no single leader who actually inspires me. And I am wary of this, these great leaders that are you know, portrayed by the media or over history. Um, you know, for instance, George Washington, I've just been reading a biography um, by Alexis Coe, and he was the father of the American nation, he was known for empowering people, he valued individual freedom, and yet, on the other side, he kept slaves and he encouraged the beating of slaves. So, you know, that's a tricky anomaly there, but also Alexis Coe writes how Thomas Jefferson wrote to James Madison about Washington when he retired and said of Washington, he will have his usual good fortune of reaping credit from the good arts of others. Now, we've all met people like that, haven't we, who you know, appear to do very well, but you realize that behind them, there's actually someone um, who's giving them a huge amount of help. So my um, inspiration comes from a variety of different people, not necessarily leaders in their own right, but, you know, different messages, feedback, advice, and those experiences. Um, and all that, that collaboration has really um, helped me navigate the tricky waters of, of leadership. Yeah, I, I think it's, you, you make some really good points. Um, I've often found that these, especially great men and women, have feet of clay. And w when you really find out about them, um, there's no such thing as, for example, a functional family. All families are somewhat dysfunctional. Um, and this yeah. was some advice I had from a, uh, a psychotherapist who worked with families. And, you know, you, you see these, these great families and you think they're fine. And I'm very privileged in the people I coach and work with. But as, as they start to talk about the whole of them, you realize it's not a dream life at all. Uh, it has many challenges. Uh, and it depends how people, it's not the fact you have a problem, it's how you handle it that marks out the, the very average from the impressive who make the most of their life. But I do think you're right that um, people have been put on a pedestal when you read their life history. Uh, like, you know, Steve Jobs, great Steve Jobs, you know, the man was probably on the spectrum of a white-collar psychopath and, you know, believed that as a fruitarian, he didn't need to shower for three weeks because he ate fruit, so that meant he didn't smell. Well, of course he smelled. You know, everyone knew he, but he believed in his parallel universe. He didn't. And um, he had his tantrums like everybody else, but he did achieve some amazing things. So it's sort of a strange mix of different people that you're going to get as the motorcycle yeah. tour guide joining you uh, and for whatever reasons they might be on there. We'll talk a bit, a bit more about the kind of people you've got in and what you learn about human behavior and human psychology from trying to herd a group of cats together <laughs> to get on their bikes and go off into the hills. Um, 
the, the next one we were going to talk about is is um, your story of when you got it wrong because I find we're very lucky with the leaders on this inspiring leadership series. They they don't come on because they want to come on. They come on because they're recommended, and you were recommended to come on this um, by my good friend Dave Hudson, who's also been on the series, and he knew that you had a story to tell, and I, and I I know you have too, and and it's the the humility of leaders who actually admit I don't know or I got it wrong. And they're prepared to learn from it. It's the ones that worry us, both you and me, who won't learn from other people. And, and I think you're going to talk a, a story about that later on, about ego and people who, who ask for help and those who don't. But in this particular case, what was your story when you got it wrong and, and what you learned from it? What was your story? Well, Jonathan, these tours, these groups are with up to 15 people. And um, they come along on the trip. They've never met. Um, I've never met them. I don't know anything about their background. Um, they could be, you know, people who are very, have very powerful jobs. They could be leaders, like you said before, in their own right. Um, and some of them, they have different expectations and different abilities. You know, some of them are fully prepared for a military expedition with a bivy bag and rations. Others expect freshly ground coffee in their room. So they come together for this fortnight and I have to sort of make a team out of them because the obstacles that we face, you know, we have, like I said before, we have all the, the, the Himalayan problems, meltwater, landslides, but we also have sickness, diarrhea. Altitude sickness is a very real risk up there. You know, people do get wiped out by it and they have to be, have met, we, we carry oxygen for them. We have a full medical kit. Um, and these people have to let go and, and allow someone else to be in, in charge and they have to follow them. And that's very difficult when you're in a really unnerving situation is to just trust someone else. So they're facing things that they haven't ever faced before, dirt roads and what have you. But it is what they've signed up for. You know, they've signed up for an adventure. And I found that when I first started doing these tours, I spent a lot of time worrying about their happiness. Were they happy? Were they enjoying it? Was this delivering the trip of their dreams? Did they get on with their roommate? You know, they looked miserable at the end of an exhausting day. Did, do they think that this is too much for them? It's ridiculous. You know, as a, as a leader, we're there to motivate, we're there to inspire, we're there to build and maintain group dynamics, we're there to resolve problems. But as leaders, we are never responsible for the happiness of individuals. That, that's their job. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and I'm a great believer in Stoic philosophy. I, I read a lot uh, around it. Ryan Holiday, there's a, a favorite of mine called The Daily Stoic. And it's the first thing I read in the morning. I don't fill my mind with the trash from the news, which is just filling your, your head yeah. full of garbage, like your body full of burgers and chips. So I... I read something inspiring from Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or Seneca. And, and, and they talk about the fact that you can't um, control others. The only control you have is over yourself, your thoughts and the actions you personally take. Now, that will have perhaps a positive influence on others. But, but don't take on that responsibility for what mm -hmm. people think about you and what they say about you and what they do. Anything you can control is what you do, say, and think. What's your thoughts? I think that's true, but I also think that when, you know, the difference is with these, when you have business and the military, people are trained and paid to 
follow you. You know, you are their leader. With these tours, they're paying money to come on um, these trips and have an experience. So they have expectations. And it's easy to fall into the trap of um, feeling you have to deliver those expectations of, of enjoyment of a, you know, for some people, they're having a difficult um, life, they might have gone through a divorce, um, family death, and these are sort of huge trips that they've maybe saved up for for five or six years or something. Some people, it's just a, a quick trip, other people, it is a dream. And when you're delivering this dream, you can feel that responsibility of that happiness. And it was exhausting. And I, I had to just say, no, I'm responsible for these people's safety and all those other things. But, but it's up to them, you know, if they're happy or not about it. I, I can't help with that. Yeah. So that's, it's interesting, I think. Yeah, it is a great responsibility. A great weight on your shoulders of, you know, getting them all out there and getting them all back um, in one piece. And... Uh, this is quite an unusual thing for anybody to do. Why did you decide to do it? Well, a friend of mine said to me, do you want to come on a motorbike trip to India? And I said, no. And he said, oh, well, why not? And I said, I don't like organized holidays. You know, I'm used to traveling by myself. And uh, he said, oh, come on, it will be really good fun. So I said, oh, all right then. So I went. And I remember thinking, that's a dream job. I'd quite like to do this job, you know, every day for six months of the year, be out in India riding a motorbike. And basically, you know, long story short, a job came up and I was offered it and I said, yes, I'd like to do it. So I, I did it, you know, for six or seven months of the year, every year for four years. My life was in two halves, literally. I would go to India. I would have this life in India in the mountains, seeing all the local people that I saw, you know, week in, week out. And then I'd come back to England and go and do my own fun trips um, alone. And, uh, and then visit family, you know, eat lots of things that I couldn't eat in India and, uh, and then go back out again. And so it was, it was a, it's a bizarre existence. But now I do, you know, these tours are bespoke. So I spend a lot less time in, in India. Um, and just go out for, for stretches um, that are much shorter and then, and then come back. Yeah, but it, it is interesting, uh, having been in uh, Nepal on trek myself, um, I, I remember I was the, the team medic and I had a day's training, unlike you who, who's got more experience. Um, but the word spread, there was a doctor on the hill and people yes. walked for five days to find me. Yeah. And, and I was, I got out of my tent one morning at five in the morning because I could hear some noise and it was still dark. And there was this queue of 20 people to see the doctor. Like, I don't doubt oh my it. God, this is, it's just like, I'm appalled because I, what can I, I tried to help where I could, but I was, I was more, more of a liability than an asset. Guys with, yeah. you know, boils the size of tennis balls and, you know, all sorts of illnesses. And, and so I had to try and spread the word out, but of course they were so, desperate for help and you realize um just how how grim things and you got people now here we are in this global pandemic and people are complaining oh, i've been locked down for three months this is awful they don't understand what awful is at all they, they just a privileged life but you've been out there in the hills of india and nepal and you 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 meet the locals and you know just how tough life can be tell us more 
we go to a place called the Zanskar Valley and they soon they're building a road to the end of it but this is um hundreds of kilometers down a dead end valley and there's a town at the end called Padum and there's one hospital there and I've been inside that hospital and I spoke to a doctor and I actually um I, I was going for treatment for a, a, an infection in my leg and they asked me if I would go into um this um labor ward um to be looked at by one of the ladies it was completely empty but there was the um the bed for the ladies to to give birth and literally you know a plastic bucket and and this it was it was prehistoric and i said to the doctor you know is this where people come to give birth he suggests he said i know it's not very good and it's nothing like in your country he said but in the winter time we can fly people we can't fly people um so in the winter time we can fly people out of the valley but in the summertime, the army won't send the helicopter. They have to go by road. He said, so if there's appendicitis, we can't fix it here. We can only do very basic things. We can only do very simple births. And I've ridden in on that road on my motorbike. And the thought of bouncing along for, you know, a 16, 17 hour journey with appendicitis, a broken limb or a complicated pregnancy, you know, about to give birth. You can't imagine how horrendous that is. So, yeah. you know, we complain about the, um, the, the fact they'll build a road and it will be ruined. But for those people, lives are going to be saved. Yeah, go on. It really it puts everything in perspective. But I think, I think it, it's really important that you, you must learn such a lot from the people that you meet in these different countries. And it, it surely must put a perspective about what matters in life and what doesn't matter in life. Do you want to just say a bit about you know, what matters and what doesn't? I've travelled to a lot of different places and I've travelled on my own a lot as a woman and I know that's unusual. I've travelled by bicycle and I've travelled by motorcycle. But people are the same the world over, Jonathan. They want, they want their children to have a life, a future for their children. They want a roof over their head and they want food on the table and they want to feel safe. And that's the case the world over. And people just do what they can with the things that they have. But fundamentally, it's, it's just about love, you know, of their family, of their neighbours. And I find, have found that the less people have, the more willing they are to, to give their time and their whatever small thing that they have. I've been in Morocco and people have emerged from a house and just offered me some, some bread. You know, have you got everything you need? Are you OK? Do you need anything? They're so generous. And um, it's an, you know, some people will say that's an idealistic way, a romantic view of the world, but I just find that's what, what people like. Yeah, you remind me of, um, I was based with the Scots Guards in Cyprus and I was training for the double mountain marathon. And I spent a lot of my, some months on the mountain, uh, training with my teams. Uh, and we had a, it was a six and a half thousand foot mountain, nothing like your 18,000 feet, but going from sea level to six and a half thousand running, it is hard work in that kind of temperature. But we'd be in the most remote spots and there'd be some tiny houses and we'd be running through training and they'd come out and they'd give us grapes and a little, little, little sort of spirits or something they'd made locally. Incredibly generous. Um, yeah. That you just don't find, when you went down to the bigger cities like Limassol and Larnaca, they were trying to rip you off and take advantage of you and charge you to yeah. it. Up there, they were giving you their, their last possessions. And I found the same in yeah. Nepal. 
that they you know they had the one chicken and because the fibers were on track they would want to give it to us um which was just like wow and we've sort of lost that humanity what about some amusing stories about leadership some bizarre stories from your, your travels Tell us. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know if they're amusing, but they're certainly bizarre, of course. I have to say that the majority of people that we get on tour are absolutely lovely and a real pleasure to spend a fortnight with. But some people are bizarre and they have very odd ideas of where they are and what, what's happening. And we had this group arrive and the first morning, the first breakfast, there was a sort of kerfuffle at the end of the table with the, the waiter. And it transpired that this customer was complaining to this waiter in all seriousness because his omelette had arrived on his plate and he wanted it to arrive on top of his toast on his plate. He didn't want that omelette touching the plate. And I thought, this is going to be a long tour. He's going to have a difficult fortnight. And he did have a very difficult fortnight. He just, I don't know where he thought he was, but he certainly left with not having made any new friends and thankfully he never returned. So that was really bizarre. And then the other really bizarre thing was we were up, I, I had one customer on a, a sort of bespoke tour and we were up in the middle of nowhere in Ladakh in the high Himalaya and I'd stopped to, to go to the toilet in just in the middle of nowhere. And um, I looked down and there in the dirt was a little spanner and I thought, that's a handy little spanner. I think I'll pop that in my pocket. And about two days later, we were descending a, a mountain through, there was a huge army convoy, and this guy's um, clutch cable snapped. And I said to him, just coast down the hill and we'll sort it out when you, um, when you get to the bottom, we'll find some shade. And we were rooting through the, the toolkit. And um, he said, oh, there's not one small enough. I said, oh, that's okay. We'll, we, you know, we, we can do it with a Leatherman. And then I remembered this little spanner. Do you know, it was absolutely perfect. And it solved a couple of problems over the course of that, that trip. And I did eventually confess to him that I had just randomly found it on the mountain. But I kept that for ages. I thought, you make your own luck, don't you, there? Yeah, you do. That's a, that's a lovely story. I like that one. And what about, um, everyone's listening, um, they're interested in yeah, top tips. I mean, you can't be a good leader just by picking up tips. You've got to actually have... It's got to come from within, you know, you've got to actually have the spirit, a sense of purpose, your values, and wanting to make a difference and leave a legacy. But what would you say would be some, some practical tips um, that, uh, that you've got? And if you hear some background noise, this guy's decided to wash my windows while we're going on. So, so it's oh, not no. like I'm in a rainstorm. It's not actually the case. Um, yeah, what would you say some, some, some top tips on leadership from your experience in the high Himalayas with a bunch of bizarre individuals trying to weld them into a team uh, and, yes. and sort out whether the omelette is on the toast or on the plate. So I, on the theme of an omelette actually, my top tip is to, to never make a decision on an empty stomach. And that's quite amusing, but you know, we're complicated houseplants basically. We need air, we need light, we need water and we need food to, to survive. And you cannot expect your body and your brain to be working to their full potential if they don't have fuel. You know, you cannot make a sensible, informed decision without your, your, you know, your needs being met. And as a leader, it's important 
to look after yourself, you know, particularly when we have problems like altitude sickness, but, but generally, you know, if you're stuck in meetings all day in a windowless room, how can you, without having anything to eat, how can you really concentrate? How can you really focus? And the same with your teams, you know, don't ask your team to do, um, you know, achieve things if they haven't had fresh air and a bit of daylight and a break and people sort of forget about those basic human needs. Also, I, from experience, you know, you cannot get any sense out of um, someone who's tired and hungry, and I mean really tired and hungry. Um, send them away, have a rest, have something to eat, let's talk about this tomorrow or later on or something. And on the, the second part of this is, is that sometimes as a leader, when things get very difficult, people expect an immediate response, you know, an immediate solution, particularly like now in times of COVID, you know, people don't necessarily know what, what, what to do. They've never experienced this, this thing before. And you can feel the pressure from them to come up with that immediate response, immediate solution. No, just say, I need a minute to think about this, please. And actually take a moment. And if you can, go away, have a rest, take a break, come back to it with fresh eyes and a, and a mind and a body that are refreshed and refueled and working to their full potential. That's really good advice. And I, I think people in the offices that, you know, who are listening to this, um, don't get the timing right, or they don't think about people thinking well because they're fueled. And, and yeah. I, for example, when I'm doing a two-hour team session by Zoom with people all around the world, um, I've, got, I've got one coming up with a group of people in Zimbabwe. Uh, they've asked for it as a favor. Um, I do it for free, as in these days, not much gets paid for when people haven't got much money, but it's gonna be very interesting. But I'll make sure it's in 35 minute chunk and a five minute loose stop or a comfort break, and then yeah. five minutes, and then another five minute comfort break, and then 35 minutes, because if people are on long sessions, they're not concentrating, they're not there, they can't make no. the decisions, they're not focused. And equally, if they, they're not fueled up, food, water, um, comfort breaks, whatever it might be, um, then they won't, they won't think well. And certainly sleep um, is the crucial foundation of everything. And I, I do notice the difference if, if one of the executives has not had good sleep or they're consistently getting insufficient sleep. And uh, one of the things that you've, you've really raised for me is that in this time of crisis, people are working very hard. And in some cases, much harder than they've ever done before. But they can't carry that on for four, five, six, seven, eight months like that. They've got to have some breaks and they've got to have some holidays. What's your thoughts? I agree. Um, I think people obviously need breaks and holidays, but I think over the course of a day, you know, it's, you're not a machine. You need to say to people, do you know, I've actually been sitting here for three and a half hours now. I think it's time I or we all just had a, a 10 minute fresh air and I must get something to eat. I've met friends who work in the, the corporate world and they say, oh gosh, I didn't get my lunch until four o'clock. And I think, well, how have you managed to survive? And to, how are you even thinking? And on tour, we would, you know, we'd always stop for, for tea and for lunch and, and snacks in between. Now, if I'd had a hard day dragging people out of water crossings and, you know, people falling off and I had to pick their bikes up with them and help them, I would have snacks with me because I knew that, 
if I didn't keep my strength up and, and, and keep my energy coming in, I would be a victim of, of altitude sickness. It's one of the, the problems, not enough water, not enough food. Suddenly I'm a casualty. Now, in the, you know, in the normal world, not enough sleep, not enough food and not enough fresh air and your mental health starts to suffer and then your team starts to suffer, don't they? And nothing is as easy if you are tired and hungry and just worn out. So, you know, just, I'm not, I am human. I need to stop and then we'll carry on. Well, I'm, I'm not sure you are human. I was talking to my, my, my dear friend, Dave, who uh, is your, your partner. And, and he was saying, oh, Kate and I are training at the moment and we've been doing 15, 20 burpees at the end of a session. And I've been trying to do that too. So I've been doing my hit training and then I go, oh, yeah, Kate and Dave uh, 20 burpees at the end. And so I try this and I go, I'm knackered. How does she do this? So tell me. Never get Yeah, you see, fitness is very important in a leader, isn't it? Keeping health and, uh, uh, and, and fit because then you can cope physically and mentally. What do you do at the moment to keep fit? Because, you, you know, you've got this time while you're waiting for COVID to finish. You can't go back on your tours while this is happening. What are you doing to keep fit and healthy? Oh, well, I kayak and I um, cycle. And yes, we do these um, little um, circuit regimes. But um, interestingly, I had, um, I had an accident about a, a year and a half ago, road traffic accident. Ironically, it was in, in England. Um, it's just ridiculous. Um, and I had to have an operation and um, on my broken collarbone. And I had a, a, a bespoke trip booked um, for three months from the date of the operation. All the flights were booked, the motorcycles were booked, um, some of the accommodation. And I had um, a group of three people, you know, ready to, to go. I, I couldn't change it. So I thought, okay, I've got to embark on a, a fitness regime. I need to have the strength. We're riding a lot of dirt roads. It was only me. So I was the medic and the you know, mechanic and everything. And they, they wouldn't have known the route if I hadn't have gone. So I had to just get fit. I had to get strong. But the difficulty I found in some ways was actually the mental aspect. I worried, you know, was I going to be able to actually ride the motorbike? I wasn't going to have a chance to go out into the, the dirt roads and, and practice on a motorbike. I didn't have time. I certainly didn't because I was, you know, waiting for this to heal. But Kate, um, how, much, how much does the motorbike weigh? They are very heavy motorbikes. So what does the motorbike oh, weigh? And then when you add the kit onto it, how much, how heavy might it be? Well, my... We were talking earlier about my trip to Morocco, um, which is on my own motorbike, which is very heavy. Whereas these Royal Enfield um, bullets, or we use the Himalaya, um, they, they're, they're pretty weighty. I don't know the exact weight, but we do carry minimal gear. So I had to just overcome this, um, this kind of uh, mental, will I, self-doubt, I suppose. And uh, I went out and it was fine. You know, I... The, the shoulder wasn't a problem. The surgeon had done a good job. Um, but it was that sticking to that regime. And that regime, um, you know, of just maintaining fitness. You get natural fitness, of course, ride a motorbike. But we were talking earlier about the weight of my own motorbike, which is 145 kilos. It's a dual sport, like a dirt bike. And I was traveling around Morocco by myself and uh, down in the desert, very remote, and I, one evening, I was tired and hungry after a long day, and I came across a really difficult terrain, a sort of very steep uphill and a steep downhill. And I fell off, 
and um, I couldn't pick the motorbike up. It had fallen in an awkward angle and it was loaded with petrol and, and water and everything. So I had to unload everything and, and, and pick this motorbike up. And I thought, you know, can I, can I do this or not? So I decided to camp at the bottom of the, the slope that night and tackle it tomorrow. And that night I thought about um, bravery and I thought, will I ever feel brave? You know, I'm fit enough for this, but this is a real mental thing. Can I do this? What happens if I have an accident? And I realized that it was me that was stopping myself. You know, I was telling myself all the possibilities that could go wrong. And um, the next day I woke up and I felt really sick with nerves and I walked the route. So I, you know, pulled on my experience and just thought, what shall I do? So I, I planned my route physically by walking up there and then, uh, and I tackled it and I was absolutely fine. But that thing about bravery and fear and nerves, I think is, is, is an interesting one actually. Mm. It, it certainly is. And, and what's the name of your company? If people want to come on tours with you in future years when the pandemic lifts, what, what's the, how would they find your company? Well, they need, to, they need to email me. The company that I used to work for doesn't really run in the same way now. That's, um, that's called Blazing Trails. Um, so they can look up that. Um, and then, yeah, they just have to get hold of me personally if they want to go on a bespoke tour. Uh, to and you're on, you're on LinkedIn. They can find you on LinkedIn, can they? That's right, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. I'll make sure I'll direct them to you. So um, we, we've got about 10 minutes or so left, but there's so many things I want to talk to you about. A little bit of a vignette of uh, your upbringing and how it shaped the leader you are today. You know, uh, how would that shape you into the woman who goes into the remotest part of the deserts of Morocco, the highest hills in the Himalayas, picking a group of um, uh, unusual uh, people who've been successful in other ways in their life, but they've never done this kind of thing. Um, give us a, a taste of your upbringing and how it shaped you as the leader you are today. Well, we moved around quite a lot with my father's work and we, he was a plant and transport manager and we ended up up north. And um, I say we because I've got a twin brother and um, we were bullied quite a lot from, just because we were from the south and so different, you know. And uh, I started doing judo because um, I needed to build up my confidence. I needed to get tough, you know, for all this bullying. And I had a fantastic coach and I'm still really good friends with him. And I remember he said to me when I was young, after some crushing defeat in a competition, do you know, Kate, you will always meet someone bigger than you, faster than you, stronger than you and better than you. And you won't be able to beat them, but you can learn from them. And that is something that has stuck with me my whole life. I've never been consumed with jealousy when people have been more successful at something than me or better at something, I've just looked to them and thought, they're really good at that. You know, how can I learn from them? And maybe even said to them, you're really good. You know, tell me how you do that. Um, and also my, um, my dad, he instilled a sort of a, a confidence in me, I suppose, without me even knowing when I was younger, that I could just do things myself. So he taught me to use tools. He taught me then to use power tools. He taught me how to service my car, do basic plumbing, electric. So when I bought my house, when I was um, my first house when I was 18 and it needed renovation, I didn't have enough money to, you know, get someone in to do it. So he just sort of said, right, you better do it yourself then. Of course you can do it. We've done this, this and this. And I admire him for his knowledge and his um, skill. 
but I also admire his attention to detail. He's the sort of man that would say, I know that no one else can see this, you know, we fix something behind a bath panel in the bathroom. No one else can see it, Kate, but if we don't do it right, I'll always know it's there and it's not quite right. And I think that sort of, um, that doing your best is something that also came from my mum. So when I went to Oxford University to do my masters, I embarked on this um, radio drama. I'd, I'd been writing poetry for a long time for my BA, and uh, we had to do a dissertation and uh, a creative piece. So I embarked on this radio drama because there was a story I wanted to tell, and it seemed like a good idea. And it was hard because I wasn't, you know, particularly experienced at all in this discipline. But my tutor, my supervisor, was very encouraging. Now. Just towards the end of the course, um, I got this job in India and uh, I had three months of the course to go. So I was finishing this project and um, I, I had good marks. I could have handed it in as it was and, and got, a, you know, a pass. But my mum's kind of teaching of, you know, really you have to do your best was there in my mind. And I knew that if I'd handed this piece of work in and said, oh, that'll do, it would never have really sat well with me. And now, and it's the same if you have any sort of project, you know, anything that you have, if you don't put your whole heart into it, if you have a job interview, you don't prepare properly for it, you don't put your whole heart into it and you don't get that job, you don't get that work, you know, some sort of accolade, you know that it's probably because you didn't actually put the effort in. So that's something I'm very, very conscious of and always have been. And it's something I've learned as a stonemason, um, my the guy that I did my apprenticeship under, he said to me, um, you know, you always work between two straight lines in stonemasonry, it's very mathematical. And he said to me, if you don't get the first part, the first part absolutely perfect, you don't move on to the next stage because you'll never create a perfect piece. It will never be very good because the basics aren't right. And I think that's something important to remember, you know, spend time on those basics, get the foundations right. Don't just rush through. And in fact, there's a, there was a guy I worked with and if he made a mistake on a, on a piece of stone, he would then do the next one by hand completely. No power tools, no shortcuts, because it was to instill into himself about those, um, those basics. And also, yeah, and also um, he said to me, if you have four tasks, three or four tasks, and there's one that you're dreading, do the one that you're dreading first. Get it out of the way because it will always hang over you while you're doing the other ones. And you won't really be able to give them everything because you'll have this sort of dread for the next one. Yeah, and, and that fits with that metaphor that, you know, eat the frog first thing in the morning. If you had to eat a frog or the most disgusting thing, do it now. Just, just do it, get it done, and then you'll feel such a sense of achievement. The other things will be much smaller even though that might be quite a big, difficult task, but you've got it done. It's what we call deep work, doing some, some important thing first. What about the um, proudest moments of your career and your life? Because it's not really a career, it's just been a, a fascinating mix of uh, an eclectic collection of all sorts of interesting things. What's been some of the proudest moments, a couple of those? I think um, it would be that when I finished that radio drama and I was sitting in my house that I'd packed up, you know, ready to go off for this life in India, surrounded by all these boxes. And I, I finished that, that work. And I, I said, you have to have it sent off to be printed and bound. And now I have that, um, 
that radio drama on my shelf. It's not the best radio drama that's ever been written, but it's the best that I could do at the time. What's, and it, I think, what's it called, Kate? Oh, it's called Sersha. It's about the Vietnamese boat people. How do you spell Sersha? Um, S-A-O-I-R-S-E. It means freedom in Gaelic. So um, that was a real um, achievement. And also um, overcoming my own kind of fears. Not, well, I don't know if fears is the right word, but sort of overcoming challenges um, on my own, on trips, that um, it's very easy for people to say, you shouldn't do that, you know, what happens if this? People will try and put you off doing challenges. They'll look for the, the dangers. They'll look for the, 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 the things that could go wrong. And things can go wrong all the time in any aspect of life. But my English teacher, um, tutor for my BA course, she was, she's a very interesting woman. And she said to me, you know, people will always have criticism of your work. You know, she was talking about poetry. Take it on board, take on that criticism. But at the end of the day, it's your own thing. And it's up to you to make those decisions at, at the end of, um, of, of the day. You know, you have to make choices. And um, I think that's, you know, that's a crucial thing to remember. You always have criticism from, from all sorts of angles, you know. Oh, you do this in India. Oh, you should have a proper job. You know, when are you going to settle down? All those things. But it, it is really your own choices, isn't it, of, of what you actually do. And you sometimes do have to stick to your guns a little bit. Yeah, well, it sounds like you certainly have because you've lived a fascinating life thus far. And I, I think it's an interesting one about, taking on criticisms and feedback because uh, the leaders that are listening to this, they often need to get 360 feedback, particularly if they're leading large groups of people and learn from it just as you, when you've done your, your high Himalaya motorcycle tours, ways that you could improve it. Feedback from people on what would make it better for the next tour is always good because otherwise you're never going to learn if you think you know it all. Um, I'm interested in, um, the human psychology of a, a loose collection of people, a group that you have to weld into a team during your two weeks in the high Himalayas, having known nothing about them, and they arrive with all their psychological baggage. What have you learned about human behavior, good and, and bad? You know, the, the people who have nice qualities and that you, you find they're good to have on the team, and the people who are the sort of white-collar psychopaths who, uh, who really be allowed... <laughs> What's, what's your learning about human psychology? I'm very interested in um, fear and nerves. And when the people come on the trips, like I said, they may have no um, experience of riding on a dirt road. Nine times out of ten, they've never come across these difficult, frightening obstacles. You know, rocks falling down from a mountain. They've got to negotiate high mountain passes. You know, sheer drops on one side. They could be petrified of heights. And I realized over the course of time that although they're, they're frightened about the, uh, the obstacle, the difficult thing, because as adults, we're so pre-programmed to avoid things that scare us, that unnerve us, um, we're very unfamiliar with the actual feelings, the actual physical feelings of fear. So when we have them as adults, children have them all the time, you know, they're always exposed to new things. Adults aren't. 
So when they have those physical feelings, the dry mouth, the, oh my God, butterflies in the stomach, you know, the, the sweaty palms, whatever it is, they're actually more frightened or more unnerved by those feelings than they actually are of the thing that's happening. So, you know, my advice to people is to, to get used to those feelings, to accept them. And I used to say to customers, of course you feel nervous. You've never done this before. You're in the mountains in India. You've never, you've never experienced, you know, three foot of water, you know, coming off the mountainside or, you know, a muddy, very muddy track. You are going to feel nervous, but you can do it. And I think that um, harnessing those feelings of, of fear and recognizing them makes it a lot easier to just examine them, put them to one side, and then you know give your presentation or talk to your boss or whatever it is that you are finding particularly unnerving, um, or even you know cross that terrifying, I don't know, landslide. But just be familiar with those feelings and accept them as a natural human response and don't be frightened of, of those feelings of fear. Brilliant. So Kate, Kate Oliver, we uh, are coming to the end of our time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. We could chat for another hour or two, I know. And I'm looking forward to you and David jumping on one of your motorbikes and coming up to see us. Lee and I would like to oh, so nice. and look after you and hear some more stories. But I, I take away from this for the Inspiring Leadership Series that the lessons from uh, unusual people, unexpected situations, being prepared for the unexpected, and just adapting yourself to that and, and working with a whole cross-section of people. And that leadership isn't this one great person that we all want to be about. It's a mix of so many things and your upbringing and your father, your mother, um, teachers and people like that that you've learned from on the way. It's been a, a great series. Thank you very much for your time and look forward to seeing you soon, Kate. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.